You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Republican Party film, a part of the convention proceedings here, called Portrait of a President. Mr. Nixon, it was uh, necessarily somewhat incomplete. One little detail, domestic detail, was added the other day by Mrs. Nixon, who was talking about their home life, and she was asked if she and the president ever fight, and she said, no, they don't fight when they have a disagreement, as they sometimes do. They just give each other the silent treatment, which might be familiar to a lot of households. We'll be back in a moment after this message from Gulf. That's a group of young Republicans in the balcony at the far end Ladies of the hall. Ladies and gentlemen, shouting four more years, if you couldn't understand the word. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> To those who say that we don't have young people, I just hope you're... <laughs> well, I certainly can say this is the most wonderful welcome I've ever had, and for those... I listened to Jimmy. I listened to Jimmy Stewart's uh, 
introduction of me and I was so appreciative and grateful to him for being here today and he certainly is right. I stay in the wings and don't come out in front too often. So this is quite unusual for me but I do want to thank all of you for your friendship and your loyal support and for the planning this wonderful evening for me. I shall remember it always. And thanks to the young people for this great welcome. In a family of boys, uh, they were poor. I, I can remember his... Uh, telling me one night about uh, we were on a trip somewhere and we got talking about the poor and uh, he said well you know there were in the in the summer in california we boys used to work in the tomato fields and they bring tomatoes home and he said there would be uh, days and days when we'd live on nothing but tomatoes tomato soup and sliced tomatoes and tomato paste on bread and that kind of thing and he said um, i know what that feels like when you, when you just don't have any money in the family. But the thing that family always had, and that his mother, a uh, little woman, but very, very strong, she gave that family was this very strong sense of conviction, of, uh, almost uh, puritanical conviction about what was moral, what was right. And you worked for a living, and you saved your money, and you led a clean life, and so on. And you did things for other people. Well, this has... This has been a kind of a code uh, for him all his life. To persist against adversity is Richard Nixon's inheritance. When, in 1960, he suffered his first defeat after a meteoric rise, that persistence was to sustain him. Looking back, I think that being out of office, going through the trauma of defeat and disappointment, Nobody has really been defeated until he's been defeated after running for president. But after having been through that, and then to have to come back, a man develops a certain strength in adversity that you never get in success. We ought to have a recruiting program at the high school and college levels, not just for these symbolistic jobs. We don't want to have basically a, a White House Mexican, or a White House Negro, or a White House woman, and so forth. That's what everybody else has done. I mean, this, this whole jazz about the effect that, well, there ought to be a woman in the cabinet or a Mexican in the cabinet or Italian in the cabinet. That isn't what matters. What matters is that whoever a person is, he's got to feel, whatever his background is, he's got a chance to come to the government and is welcome. But he's got to look at the top and say, gee, I might get that. I that's, might have a chance. I think his sensitivity and his responsiveness it's the kind of thing that, that I see is, is not sexy as such. It's not the kind of thing that, that the newspaper people or the media generally will, will write about because that's doing right. That's doing what every other American president should have been doing uh, 25 years ago. When you take kindergarten kids and put them on a bus for an hour and a half, when they got a school they could walk to five minutes away, well, that's wrong. It's wrong for the white children. It's wrong for the black children. Massive busing produces inferior education. And education's the name of the game. And, and, and the thing we've got to do, John, is to keep it out of this, this racial uh, fight. Because, see, one of the problems with massive busing, instead of, as it was intended to do, 
to bring people together, you know, and to knock down the racial yeah. barriers. Yeah. It's creating hatred and strife uh, such as we have seen explode in recent months. There's a study. We simply yeah. aren't going to have it anymore. I, like most of my colleagues, had always been opposed to him and had formed certain images about him. And I found that he was really, uh, was totally different from the image the intellectuals have of him. He's uh, very analytical, quite gentle in his manner. What he was trying to do is pretty well what he's done. Uh, is to get into, to revitalize our alliances, to get into a new relationship with the Soviets, to begin to feel our way towards the Chinese. I recall when I joined him back in 1965, I was an editorial writer for a conservative paper in the Midwest, and if you'd have told me that day that a few years hence that I would be sitting in the Great Hall, the people in Peking, China, clinking glasses with Joe M. Lai while the People's Liberation Army Band played Home on the Range, I would have said, you're out of your ever loving mind. <laughs> China with Zhou Enlai, President Nixon begins a dialogue which marks an historic change in American policy. A political realist, the president knows that communication with China is indispensable to his grand design. The result of a long and careful planning of a vision for peace born long ago. It's a big word, but there's a certain heroic quality about how he conducts his business because he, he does it all in a very understated way. Of course, I can only judge foreign policy, and I believe uh, that his impact on foreign policy will be historic, no matter what happens. The thrust for peace leads to the Soviet Union. The president will not be dissuaded by the days of hard negotiation ahead. The opportunity to reduce world tension is at hand, and he achieves a breakthrough with agreements in environment, space, medicine, and a trade pact creating new jobs for Americans. But most significant of all, a treaty to limit arms. Upon his return, the president is given full welcome on the floor of Congress. The president is heard by his government and by his people across the breadth of America. But it is not by his words that this man wishes to be judged, but by what he has done. This is a man of deeds more than rhetoric. A man of vision, born out of his own trials, his own succeeding. This is a man who calls out to America to have faith in itself, to go forward without fear, to build on the foundations he has laid down. And America will hear him. <coughs> Excuse me. Republican Party film, a part of the convention proceedings here, called Portrait of a President. Mr. Nixon. We'll be back in a moment after this message from Gulf.
Hi, this is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone can embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. Mr. Chairman, members of the convention, and my fellow Americans, four years ago in this hall, I stood before the national convention of our great party and accepted nomination for the high office of Vice President of the United States. I accepted an honor and a challenge. Tonight I stand before you, my fellow Americans, to accept again that nomination. And again, I accept an honor and a challenge with pride and with gratitude. But more than an honor and a challenge, I accept an opportunity to continue to discharge a known responsibility. For I have lived in the crucible that is the Vice Presidency for nearly four years. And I have come to believe that notwithstanding its simple constitutional definition, the office has two primarily important functions to serve the president and to learn from the president. Surely much of the controversy about the vice presidency could be quieted if we would accept the fact that the vice president is the president's man and not a competing political entity. To all great presidents, this has been always one America. With the re-election of Richard Nixon, one America is what our country will remain. Ladies and gentlemen, 
to present to you the nominee of this convention for President of the United States, the President of the United States, Richard Nixon. United States. Mr. Chairman, delegates to this convention, my fellow Americans, four years ago, standing in this very place, I proudly accepted your nomination for President of the United States. And with your help, and with the votes of millions of Americans, we won a great victory in 1968. Tonight, I again proudly accept your nomination for President of the United States. Let us pledge ourselves to win an even greater victory this November in 1972. I congratulate Chairman Ford. I congratulate Chairman Dole, Ann Armstrong, the hundreds of others who have laid the foundation for that victory by their work at this great convention. Our platform is a dynamic program for progress for America and for peace in the world. And speaking in a very personal sense, I express my deep gratitude to this convention for the tribute that you have paid to the best campaigner in the Nixon family, my wife Pat.
in honoring her, you have honored millions of women in America who have contributed in the past and will contribute in the future so very much to better government in this country. And again, as I did last night when I was not at the convention, I express the appreciation of all of the delegates and of all America for letting us see young America at its best at our convention. express my appreciation to you, I want to say that you have inspired us with your enthusiasm, with your intelligence, with your dedication at this convention. You have made us realize that this is a year when we can prove the experts' predictions wrong because we can set as our goal winning a majority of the new voters for our ticket this November. I pledge to you, I pledge to you all of the new voters in America who are listening on television and listening here in this convention hall that I will do everything that I can over these next four years to make your support be one that you can be proud of. Because as I said to you last night, and I feel it very deeply in my heart, years from now, I want you to be look back and be able to say, that your first vote was one of the best votes you ever cast in your life. Mr. Chairman, I congratulate the delegates to this convention for renominating as my running mate the man who has just so eloquently and graciously introduced me, Vice President Ted Agnew. I thought he was the best man for the job four years ago. I think he is the best man for the job today and I'm not going to change my mind tomorrow. Finally, 
As the Vice President has indicated, you have demonstrated to the nation that we can have an open convention without dividing Americans into quotas. Let us commit ourselves to root out every vestige of discrimination in this country of ours. But my fellow Americans, the way to end discrimination against some is not to begin discrimination against others. Dividing Americans into quotas is totally alien to the American traditions. Americans don't want to be part of a quota. They want to be part of America. And this nation proudly calls itself the United States of America. Let's reject any philosophy that would make us the divided people of America. In that spirit, I address you tonight, my fellow Americans, not as a partisan of party, which would divide us, but as a partisan of principles which can unite us. Six weeks ago, our opponents at their convention rejected many of the great principles of the Democratic Party. To those millions who have been driven out of their home in the Democratic Party, we say, come home. We say, come home not to another party, but we say, come home to the great principles we Americans believe in together. And I ask you, my fellow Americans tonight, to join us not in a coalition held together only by a desire to gain power. I ask you to join us as members of a new American majority bound together by our common ideals. I ask everyone listening to me tonight, Democrats, Republicans, Independents, to join our new majority, not on the basis of the party label you wear in your lapel, but on the basis of what you believe in your hearts. And in asking for your support, I shall not dwell on the record of our administration, which has been praised perhaps too generously by others at this convention. We have made great progress in these past four years. It can truly be said that we have changed America and that America has changed the world. As a result of what we have done, America today is a better place and the world is a safer place to live in than was the case four years ago. We can be proud of that record, but we shall never be satisfied a record is not something to stand on, it's something to build on. And tonight, I do not ask you to join our new majority because of what we have done in the past. I ask your support of the principles I believe should determine America's future. The choice 
the choice in this election is not between radical change and no change. The choice in this election is between change that works and change that won't work. begin with an article of faith. It has become fashionable in recent years to point up what is wrong with what is called the American system. The critics contend it is so unfair, so corrupt, so unjust that we should tear it down and substitute something else in its place. I totally disagree. I believe in the American system. I have traveled to 80 countries in the past 25 years, and I've seen communist systems, I've seen socialist systems, I have seen systems that are half socialist and half free. Every time I come home to America, I realize how fortunate we are to live in this great and good country. Every time, I am reminded that we have more freedom, more opportunity, more prosperity than any people in the world, that we have the highest rate of growth of any industrial nation, that Americans have more jobs at higher wages than in any country in the world, that our rate of inflation is less than that of any industrial nation, that the incomparable productivity of America's farmers has made it possible for us to launch a winning war against hunger in the United States, and that the productivity of our farmers also makes us the best-fed best fed people in the world with the lowest percentage of the family budget going to food of any country in the world. We can be very grateful in this country that the people on welfare in America would be rich in most of the nations of the world today. Now, my fellow Americans, in pointing up those things, we do not overlook the fact that our system has its problems. Our administration, as you know, has provided the biggest tax cut in history, but taxes are still too high. That is why one of the goals of our next administration is to reduce the property tax, which is such an unfair and heavy burden on the poor, the elderly, the wage earner, the farmer, and those on fixed income. As all of you know, we have cut inflation in half in this administration. But we've got to cut it further. We must cut it further so that we can continue to expand on the greatest accomplishment of our new economic policy. For the first time in five years, wage increases in America are not being eaten up by price increases. And as a result, 
of the millions of new jobs created by our new economic policies, unemployment today in America is less than the peacetime average of the 60s. But we must continue the unparalleled increase in new jobs so that we can achieve the great goal of our new prosperity, a job for every American who wants to work without war and without inflation. The way to reach this goal is to stay on the new road we have charted to move America forward and not to take a sharp detour to the left which would lead to a dead end for the hopes of the American people. And this points up one of the clearest choices in this campaign. Our opponents believe in a different philosophy. Theirs is the politics of paternalism, where master planners in Washington make decisions for people. Ours is the politics of people, where people make decisions for themselves. The proposal that they have made to pay $1,000 to every person in America insults the intelligence of the American voters. Because you know that every politician's promise has a price. The taxpayer pays the bill. The American people are not going to be taken in by any scheme where government gives money with one hand and then takes it away with the other. And their platform promises everything to everybody, but at an increased net in the budget of $144 billion. But listen to what it means to you, the taxpayers of the country. That would mean an increase of 50% in what the taxpayers of America pay. I oppose any new spending programs which will increase the tax burden on the already overburdened American taxpayers. And they have proposed legislation which would add 82 million people to the welfare rolls. I say that instead of providing incentives for millions of more Americans to go on welfare, we need a program which will provide incentives for people to get off of welfare and to get to work. We believe that it is wrong for anyone to receive more on welfare than for someone who works. Let us be generous to those who can't work without increasing the tax burden of those who do work. And while we're talking about welfare, let us quit treating our senior citizens in this country like welfare recipients. They have worked hard all their lives to build America. And as the builders of America, they haven't asked for a handout. What they ask for is what they have earned, and that is retirement and dignity and self-respect. Let's give that to our senior citizens.
And now when you add up the cost of all of the programs our opponents have proposed, you reach only one conclusion. They would destroy the system which has made America number one in the world economically. Listen to these facts. Americans today pay one-third of all of their income in taxes. If their programs were adopted, Americans would pay over one-half of what they earn in taxes. This means that if their programs are adopted, American wage earners would be working more for the government than they would for themselves. And once we cross this line, we cannot turn back because the incentive which makes the American economic system the most productive in the world would be destroyed. Theirs is not a new approach. It has been tried before in countries abroad. And I can tell you that those who have tried it have lived to regret it. We cannot and we will not let them do this to America. Let us always be true to the principle that has made America the world's most prosperous nation. That here in America, a person should get what he works for and work for what he gets. Let me illustrate the difference in our philosophies. Because of our free economic system, what we have done is to build a great building of economic wealth and might in America. It is by far the tallest building in the world. And we are still adding to it. Now, because some of the windows are broken, they say, tear it down and start again. We say, replace the windows and keep building. That's the difference. <laughs> Let me turn now to a second area where my beliefs are totally different from those of our opponents. Four years ago, crime was rising all over America at an unprecedented rate. Even our nation's capital was called the crime capital of the world. I pledged to stop the rise in crime. In order to keep that pledge, I promised in the election campaign that I would appoint judges to the federal courts and particularly to the Supreme Court who would recognize that the first civil right of every American is to be free from domestic violence. I have kept that promise. I am proud of the appointments I have made to the courts and particularly proud of those I made to the Supreme Court of the United States. And I pledge again tonight, as I did four years ago, that whenever I have the opportunity to make more appointments to the courts, I shall continue to appoint judges who share my philosophy that we must strengthen the peace forces as against the criminal forces in the United States. We have launched an all-out offensive against crime, against narcotics, against permissiveness in our country. And I want the peace officers across America to know that they have the total backing of their president in their fight against crime.
My fellow Americans, as we move toward peace abroad, I ask you to support our programs which will keep the peace at home. And now, I turn to an issue of overriding importance, not only to this election, but for generations to come. The progress we have made in building a new structure of peace in the world. Peace is too important for partisanship. There have been five presidents in my political lifetime, Franklin D. Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, and Lyndon Johnson. They had differences on some issues, but they were united in their belief that where the security of America or the peace of the world is involved, we are not Republicans, we are not Democrats, we are Americans first, last, and always. These five presidents were united in their total opposition to isolation for America and in their belief that the interest of the United States and the interests of world peace required that America be strong enough and intelligent enough to assume the responsibilities of leadership in the world. They were united in the conviction that the United States should have a defense second to none in the world. They were all men who hated war and were dedicated to peace. But not one of these five men, and no president in our history, believed that America should ask an enemy for peace on terms that would betray our allies and destroy respect for the United States all over the world. And as your president, I pledge that I shall always uphold that proud bipartisan tradition. Standing in this convention hall four years ago, I pledge to seek an honorable end to the war in Vietnam. We have made great progress toward that end. We have brought over half a million men home and more will be coming home. We have ended America's ground combat role. No draftees are being sent to Vietnam. We have reduced our casualties by 98%. We've gone the extra mile. In fact, we've gone tens of thousands of miles trying to seek a negotiated settlement of the war. We have offered a ceasefire, a total withdrawal of all American forces, an exchange of all prisoners of war, internationally supervised free elections with the communists participating in the elections and in the supervisions. There are three things, however, that we have not and that we will not offer. We will never abandon our prisoners of war. Second, we will not join our enemies 
in imposing a communist government on our allies, the 17 million people of South Vietnam. And we will never stain the honor of the United States of America. Now, I realize that many, particularly in this political year, wonder why we insist on an honorable peace in Vietnam. From a political standpoint, they suggest that since I was not in office when over a half a million American men were sent there, that I should end the war by agreeing to impose a communist government on the people of South Vietnam and just blame the whole catastrophe on my predecessors. This might be good politics, but it would be disastrous to the cause of peace in the world. If at this time we betray our allies, it will discourage our friends abroad and it will encourage our enemies to engage in aggression in areas like the Mideast, which are danger areas, small nations who rely on the friendship and support of the United States would be in deadly, deadly jeopardy. To our friends and allies in Europe, Asia, the Mideast, and Latin America, I say the United States will continue its great bipartisan tradition to stand by our friends and never to desert them. Now, in discussing Vietnam, I have noted that in this election year, there's been a great deal of talk about providing amnesty for those few hundred Americans who chose to desert their country rather than to serve it in Vietnam. I think it's time that we put the emphasis where it belongs. The real heroes are two and a half million young Americans who chose to serve their country rather than desert it. I say to you tonight, in these times when there is so much of a tendency to run down those who have served America in the past and who serve it today, let's give those who serve in our armed forces, forces and those who have served in Vietnam the honor and the respect that they deserve and that they've earned. Finally, in this connection, let one thing be clearly understood in this election campaign. The American people will not tolerate any attempt by our enemies to interfere in the cherished right of the American voter to make his own decision with regard to what is best for America without outside intervention. Now, it is understandable that Vietnam has been a major concern in foreign policy, but we have not allowed the war in Vietnam to paralyze our capacity 
to initiate historic new policies to conduct the last to construct a lasting and just peace in the world. And when the history of this period is written, I believe it will be recorded that our most significant contributions to peace resulted from our trips to Peking and to Moscow. The dialogue that we have begun with the People's Republic of China has reduced the danger of war and has increased the chance for peaceful cooperation between two great peoples. And within the space of four years in our relations with the Soviet Union, we have moved from confrontation to negotiation and then to cooperation in the interests of peace. We have taken the first step in limiting the nuclear arms race. We have laid the foundation for further limitations on nuclear weapons and eventually of reducing the armaments in the nuclear area. We can thereby not only reduce the enormous cost of arms for both our countries, but we can increase the chances for peace. More than on any other single issue, I ask you, my fellow Americans, to give us the chance to continue these great initiatives that can contribute so much to the future of peace in the world. And it can truly be said that as a result of our initiatives, the danger of war is less today than it was. The chances for peace are greater. But a war note of warning needs to be sounded. We cannot be complacent. Our opponents have proposed massive cuts in our defense budget, which would have the inevitable effect of making the United States the second strongest nation in the world. For the United States, unilaterally to reduce its strength with the naive hope that other nations would do likewise would increase the danger of war in the world. It would completely remove any incentive of other nations to agree to a mutual limitation or reduction of arms. The promising initiatives we have undertaken to limit arms would be destroyed. The security of the United States and all the nations in the world who depend upon our friendship and support would be threatened. Let's look at the record on defense expenditures. We have cut spending in our administration. It now takes the lowest percentage of our national product in 20 years. We should not spend more on defense than we need, but we must never spend less than we need. What we must understand is spending what we need on defense will cost us money. Spending less than we need could cost us our lives or our freedom. And so tonight, my fellow Americans, I say, let us take risks for peace, but let us never risk the security of the United States of America. And it is for that reason that I pledge that we will continue to seek peace and the mutual reduction of arms. The United States, during this period, however, will always have a defense second to none. 
There are those who believe that we can entrust the security of America to the goodwill of our adversaries. And those who hold this view do not know the real world. We can negotiate limitation of arms, and we have done so. We can make agreements to reduce the danger of war, and we have done so. But one unchangeable rule of international diplomacy that I've learned over many, many years is that in negotiations between great powers, you can only get something if you have something to give in return. And that is why I say tonight, let us always be sure that when the President of the United States goes to the conference table, he never has to negotiate from weakness. There is no such thing as a retreat to peace. My fellow Americans, we stand today on the threshold of one of the most exciting and challenging eras in the history of relations between nations. We have the opportunity in our time to be the peacemakers of the world because the world trusts and respects us and because the world knows that we shall only use our power to defend freedom, never to destroy it, to keep the peace, never to break it. A strong America is not the enemy of peace, it is the guardian of peace. The initiatives that we have begun can result in reducing the danger of arms as well as the danger of war which hangs over the world today. Even more important, it means that the enormous creative energies of the Russian people and the Chinese people and the American people and all the great peoples of the world can be turned away from production of war and turned toward production for peace. And in America, it means that we can undertake programs for progress at home that will be just as exciting as the great initiatives we have undertaken in building a new structure of peace abroad. My fellow Americans, the peace dividend that we hear so much about has too often been described solely in monetary terms. How much money we could take out of the arms budget and apply to our domestic needs. By far the biggest dividend, however, is that achieving our goal of a lasting peace in the world would reflect the deepest hopes and ideals of all of the American people. Speaking on behalf of the American people, I was proud to be able to say in my television address to the Russian people in May, we covet no one else's territory. We seek no dominion over any other nation. We seek peace, not only for ourselves, but for all the people of the world. This dedication to idealism runs through America's history. During the tragic war between the states, Abraham Lincoln was asked whether God was on his side. 
he replied, My concern is not whether God is on our side, but whether we are on God's side. May that always be our prayer for America. We hold the future of peace in the world and our own future in our hands. Let us reject, therefore, the policies of those who whine and whimper about our frustrations and call on us to turn inward. Let us not turn away from greatness. The chance America now has to lead the way to a lasting peace in the world may never come again. With faith in God and faith in ourselves and faith in our country, let us have the vision and the courage to seize the moment and meet the challenge before it slips away. On your television screen, last night, you saw the cemetery in Leningrad I visited on my trip to the Soviet Union, where 300,000 people died in the siege of that city during World War II. At the cemetery, I saw the picture of a 12-year-old girl. She was a beautiful child. Her name was Tanya. I read her diary. It tells the terrible story of war. In the simple words of a child, she wrote of the deaths of the members of her family. Senya in December, Granny in January, then Yeka, then Uncle Basha, then Uncle Leosha, then Mama in May. And finally, these were the last words in her diary, all are dead, only Tanya is left. Let us think of Tanya and of the other Tanyas and their brothers and sisters everywhere in Russia, China, in America, as we proudly meet our responsibilities for leadership in the world in a way worthy of a great people. I ask you, my fellow Americans, to join our new majority, not just in the cause of winning an election, but in achieving a hope that mankind has had since the beginning of civilization. Let us build a peace that our children and all the children of the world can enjoy for generations to come.
thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.